0: Good morning. Today's reading is Genesis 820 through 917. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never, neither will I ever again, strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast on the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds, sheds the blood of man, By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offsprings after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Then when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh when the bow is in the clouds. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth.
1: If you weren't able to get your Bible open in time earlier, you can open to the book of Genesis, chapter 8, where Charlene read for us. We're continuing our sermon series called Recreation and we're going to see a little bit more clearly this morning why the series is titled Recreation and not just Creation. Some of you know that I enjoy running. Um, I enjoy working out. I like to go to the gym with my wife. When she asked me on my days off, what would would you like to do together? Let's go to the gym, is often on the list. And I say that so that you know when I I think of things like gym memberships and Fitbits and all manner of various trending or fad diets, I do not label them as inherently bad things. That's just where I'm coming from. Uh, But I will say, friends, that I think there's a sinister side to our culture's infatuation with health and wellness. And I use that word very deliberately, I think we have an infatuation with health and wellness. That there's an implicit assumption behind the push to eat more kale, (laughs) do more yoga, and buy organic everything that goes unnoticed. There's an age old lie behind much of that. That, if unaddressed, I'm not kidding, will rob your joy and it'll destroy your soul. It's the belief that we have the power to create life and sustain life. You tracking? That's a lie. That we have the power to create life and and we have the power to sustain life. If you're a Christian, you might acknowledge on some level that the life you have is something God has entrusted to you as a gift. But but having entrusted it to you, it now feels like it's yours to carry, it's yours to bear, it's it's yours to save. And, And so you drink carrot juice. And you get bent way out of shape if you miss one of your six regularly scheduled workouts this week. Now, some of you swing in the complete opposite direction. (laughs) I love my community group leader, John Robertson. Some of you, sensing the the finitude, the, the futility of human life. You take a who cares, we're all going to die, so pass the chicken wings approach to life. (laughs) In your mind, John, all this health and wellness stuff feels like chasing a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow, right? So, So you're very aware that we live in a broken world with broken bodies, and so you think to yourself, if we're all going to die, like, why even bother holding on to life? It's not going to last. Well, friends, the path that Jesus wants us to walk when when it comes to health and wellness is not some sort of happy medium between those two extremes. It's not that the path that Jesus calls us to walk is, is built on a foundation that I will argue both of those camps miss. They both miss it. And this foundation is also the main point of the scripture that we just read, namely that the gift of human life is only upheld by the author of human life. I'm saying two things there. One, life is a gift. Two, the gift of life is only upheld by the author of life. So what's the chicken wings group functionally deny? In all seriousness, the absence of careful stewardship of your body functionally denies that life is a precious gift. It's a precious gift, a divine blessing that should be received with gratitude and maintained with diligence. Now what's the go natural or go home group functionally deny? Deny denies something too. I, I think that the, the incessant grasp to, to control their health functionally denies that the one who gives us life is also the only one who sustains our life. One group forgets life is a gift God gives. The other group forgets life is a gift God upholds. And Genesis eight twenty through nine seventeen in a wonderful way, combines both of those realities and reminds us, this is the big idea of this entire passage, that the gift of life is upheld by the author of life. And, and there are several clear reasons in this text, friends, why that's the case. Why is it the case that the gift of life is upheld by the author of life? And the first reason directly confronts the notion that we even deserve life in the first place. Because we think that. Point number one: the mercy of God gives life to man. The mercy of God gives life to man. Notice, look at Genesis eight twenty. Notice the first thing Noah does when the Lord brings him safely out of the ark—practically a full year after he entered it. What's what's he do? Genesis eight twenty. He builds an altar. He worships the Lord. He he doesn't experience God's deliverance, conclude, it's about time you did something good for me, and then immediately get busy building a house for his family. He doesn't do that. He gives thanks to God. He praises God for his goodness in his life. Friends, may there be no blessings in our life that we fail to turn back to praise. Why? Why? Because an ungrateful Christian is a contradiction of terms. If if God's been merciful to you in Jesus, if God has not treated you according to your sins or repaid you according to your iniquities, if God has forgiven you, cleansed you, redeemed you, sanctified you, and in so many ways, given you the exact opposite of what you deserved, then take care, friend, that you turn every blessing back to praise. Forget not all his benefits. Bless the name of the Lord. When the Lord delivered Noah, Noah blessed the name of the Lord. But he didn't do that in any old way that felt good to him. He praised the Lord, he worshipped the Lord in the way that God required. Notice that. Look back at Genesis 8.20 carefully points out that Noah offered clean animals and clean birds on the altar as a burnt offering. Now that doesn't mean that he gave them a good scrubbing before he killed them. <laughs> Though they probably needed that after a year in the ark. To, to say that an animal or a bird is clean was to say that it was ceremonially, ceremonially pure. It was an acceptable offering of worship to God. Now, now exactly how Noah knew at this point in history which animals and birds were an acceptable or or ceremonially clean sacrifice, Genesis simply doesn't say. But what we do know is that when the, the original recipients of this book, the nation of Israel, when they received this, they would have immediately recognized, in verse 20, that Noah wasn't worshiping God in any way he felt like worshiping God, okay? Noah was worshiping God in the way that God prescribed, in the way that God required. In other words, his worship of God was governed and directed by the Word of God. What's that remind us? That we can never come to God and say, hey, I'd like to do this for you, and so you should scratch my back accordingly. We worship God in the way that God requires, friends. He tells us what he wants from us. But Noah didn't just worship God in the way God required, he also worshipped God in the way God made possible. Why do I say that? Because if you remember back to Genesis 6 and 7, it was the Lord who told Noah to bring one pair of every animal, a male and its mate, but what? Seven pairs of the clean animals. Now why did God preserve seven pairs of clean animals for Noah? Very simple, so that after the flood, he would have all that he needed in order to worship the Lord in the way that God required. Now here's the most important part. Look at verse 21 this act of worship. There's something we learned here about our life. Pay very careful attention to the effect of the sacrifice that Noah offered in the way that God required and the way that God made possible. What, What does verse 21 say? And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I hope something of what I just read struck you as very, very, very odd. And we'll see it if we ask this question, why did God destroy the world with a flood in the first place? Genesis 6, five because the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Friends, did that change after the flood? No, it didn't change. Look, look at verse 22, 822. What does it say? It says that the intention of man's heart is still post-flood evil from his youth. It's the same issue. It's the same problem. The heart of man was corrupted and bent towards sin before the flood and the heart of man is still corrupted and bent towards sin after the flood. So why does God promise to never again judge the world with a flood disrupting the natural rhythms of life? If the whole reason he brought the flood in the first place is still present after the flood. Well, the reason is that Noah sacrificed; it appeased God's anger. It placated God's justice. What does what what sin require? What does what rebellion against the creator of the world deserve? It deserves death, right? The wages of sin is death. It's been that way from the very beginning of the world. So what happens in Genesis 8, verse 21? What happens there? An animal dies. A bird dies, so that Noah and his sons wouldn't have to die. So Noah's sacrifice atoned for his sin and his family's sin in such a way that it was possible for sin to be punished without Noah being destroyed. That's what's happening. And it's it's that sacrifice of atonement. Please see that not Noah's righteousness that secured mercy from God. For Noah, his descendants, and the entire created order, Gentry and Wellems say it this way, God would be completely justified in wiping out every generation of humanity by means of a great judgment. There's only one reason why he does not do so, because of his own grace and mercy toward us. His own grace and mercy toward us. Now, when I I speak of the mercy of God, do not think in your mind that I'm just saying, you know what? God's a merciful God. You know what that means? Translation, God's a super nice guy. Merciful God. Super nice guy. That is not what I mean. Okay, when the Bible says God is merciful, it isn't saying that God is a nice guy. It's saying that God decides, as an act of his divine will, to not give us the punishment we deserve, the consequences of sin that we deserve. But he will never do that, friend, at the expense of his justice. Okay, God is not bipolar. What do I mean by that? He's not merciful one day and just the next day. Merciful, just, merciful, merciful, just, just, merciful. He's not bipolar. His mercy is just. And his justice is merciful. So what, is, what does that mean for us? Well, what, what it means is that in order for us to experience God's mercy, God must provide a way to satisfy his justice. So verse 21 teaches us what? more than anything else, that it is atonement for sin that secures mercy for man. Atonement for sin secures mercy for man, and that is precisely what God has done for us through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus' sacrifice was like Noah's sacrifice. Except Jesus' sacrifice was infinitely better. Infinitely better. Why do I say that? Because Noah's sacrifice secured a physical mercy. Right, A physical mercy, a promise from God to never again destroy the world with a flood. What does Jesus' sacrifice secure, friends? Jesus' sacrifice secures a spiritual mercy. A promise from God that, that all who come to the Father through faith in the Son will receive an experience and know the joy of eternal life with God. So it's like Noah's sacrifice, but it's infinitely better. What's the point in these verses? The point is that all of us have sinned against the Lord. We don't deserve life. We don't deserve it. So when, when, the, when the gift of life is upheld by the author of life, it's not because God's giving us what we deserve. It's because God is being exceedingly merciful to you and merciful to me. Point number one, the mercy of God gives life to me. The mercy of God gives life to man. Don't forget that. Okay, that's the first reason why the gift of life is upheld by the author of life, because the mercy of God gives it to us in the first place. Point number two, the blessing of God sustains the life of man. Notice the connection here. The mercy of God gives life to man, and the continued blessing of God is the only thing that sustains life for man. Okay, in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 9, the, the Lord pronounces blessing. On Noah and his sons. He, he affirms and, and restores through the power of his word a, a purpose and a provision and a protection that he gives for life, the very life he mercifully grants at the end of chapter 8. And, and it's here in this point that we're really going to see how is it that the author of life actually upholds our life, okay? So, so listen carefully, all right? Verses 1 and 7 of chapter 9, if you look at those, They're they're practically identical. They're like bookends, and they wrap themselves around the first way God sustains the life of man. He gives us a purpose for life. He gives us a purpose. Look at verse 1, chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, if you've been here on Sundays for some time, you know that's not the first time God has spoken those words. Whenever you hear something in the Bible that's like, wait a minute, I think I heard that. Maybe I was sleeping, but I think I heard that before. That's worth paying attention to. It is almost exactly what God said back to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 1.28. It's the same mission God gave them. And, And the fact that God gives to Noah... The same mission that he gave to Adam and Eve tells us at least two really important things. Okay, follow me here. First, it suggests that that Noah is functioning as a sort of second Adam. So, So he's a representative for the entire human race and in turn the entire created order. As Noah goes, so everything else goes. But second, please hear this, neither the spread of sin nor the judgment of the flood have altered in the least bit God's purpose for human life. Now, Why is that a big deal? Why, Why am I passionate about that point? It's because of this. Some of you are sorely tempted to think that life with God goes as follows. You believe God has a good and glorious purpose for your life. least you would acknowledge that in your mind. But once you sin, once you do what you know is wrong, you you feel like that purpose has has disintegrated into a bag of leftovers. You you could have been cruising along on God's plan A. But now, because you've really messed up, you're just picking up the pieces on plan B or C or D. Maybe you even think that because you've made so many mistakes, God, God doesn't even have a purpose for your life anymore. I mean, I did. But then I got DQ'd. And you wouldn't say that, but, but the lack of godly ambition, the lack of passion to glorify the Lord, the lack of desire to serve people, to share Christ, to, to build up the church, it reflects that conclusion in your mind. You feel like you're done, you're finished, your life isn't even worth living. And friend, if that's you, please hear the word of the Lord to you today. Please, please hear this. The purpose of the Lord for your life does not change because of the presence of sin in your life. Say that again. The purpose of the Lord for your life does not change because of the presence of sin in your life. Are there there real consequences for sin? Thank you, Jody. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Are the circumstances in which God calls you to follow him today different because of the way you sinned in the past? Yes. Yes. But does your sin change or destroy the essence of God's good and glorious plan for your life? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Hear that. That the sin of man doesn't derail the purposes of God. Okay, what what God does in, in reaffirming and reestablishing with Noah, the very same mission that he gave to Adam, reminds us, teaches us that even when our circumstances change, God's purpose for our life doesn't change. And his purpose for our life, his, his purpose for your life, if you were reading verse 1 alone, be fruitful and multiply, it isn't limited to bearing and raising godly offspring. Lest those of you who are single or don't have children in the home anymore, or can't have children, or listening to me and thinking, well, good for you getting excited about the purpose of God. Is it just be fruitful and multiply? Actually, it's not just that. Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and what? Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over over every living thing that moves on the earth. We've we've seen that before. What's that remind us? That God commissioned Adam to rule the world on his behalf. Okay, to, to take all that the Lord had made, everything God created, and and to use it and design it and write it and paint it and teach it and protect it and construct it in a a way that enhances human flourishing. Now, where is all that in Genesis 9? All all I'm seeing is be fruitful and multiply. Well, look at verse (laughs) 2. Keep going. Look at verse 2. The fear of you, God says to Noah, and the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Now the point of that verse is not that Noah had a pet lion before the flood, and that after the flood, Noah's pet lion is going to run away. It's not the point of the verse. The point is that after the flood, God himself affirms and advances the dominion of man over the rest of the created world. God does that. So in Genesis 1, God told Adam to reflect his image to the world by ruling over creation. And in Genesis 9, God doubles down on the exact same cultural mandate by effecting, bringing to pass the very dominion that he called Adam to realize back in Genesis 1. God is bringing this submission to pass. God is bringing the dominion to pass. He doesn't just reestablish Noah's dominion. He strengthens Noah's dominion. In other words, he's restoring and accomplishing, making possible the fulfillment of his purpose for man. But what's, what's the first way that the blessing of God sustains the life of man? He, he restores, he gives us a purpose for our life. But he does something else. The blessing of God sustains our life also by making abundant provision for our life. So it gives us a glorious purpose for life. It also makes abundant provision for our life. Think about this. So before the flood, God provided what? The plants and trees of the field to nourish man. And after the flood, the plants and the trees remain. They grow back. But what does God add to that provision? He adds... Meat. He adds meat, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, now, the fact that we are allowed to eat everything doesn't mean, teenage guys, that it's wise to eat everything. <laughs> Or that we have as human beings this, this unqualified right to eat anything, okay? If you look at Genesis 9 verse 3, it certainly doesn't say that you have to eat meat, okay? There's, there's nothing wrong with a vegetarian or a, a vegan lifestyle, but what does verse 3 very clearly teach? that you had better not go promoting a vegetarian or vegan lifestyle as if it is morally superior. I see that all the time. We we, we take things like our diet and we we use it to say, well, I'm better because I don't eat that. God calls us to be a steward of our bodies, But there's no such thing as a morally superior diet. You're not better because you're on the keto whatever. (laughs) You're not better because you're on the South Beach whatever. Okay, if you don't want to eat meat, every green plant is a gift from God. If you want to eat meat, every moving thing that lives, end quote, is also a gift from God. What's the main point? The main point is that God is a generous provider. Okay, he's a generous provider. He gives us all that we need, all the food we need to sustain life and enjoy life. So the blessing of God sustains life by giving us a purpose for life. He makes provision for life. Finally, the blessing of God sustains life by granting protection for life. Purpose, provision, protection. Where do we see this? Well, throughout the Old Testament, blood is, is what? It's a symbol for life. And the prohibition that God gives Noah on consuming blood or eating blood reminds Noah of the dignity of all life. All life, including animal life. The sacred nature of blood. It also laid a foundation for what God would later give to Israel in the form of the sacrificial system. Where he taught them that the blood of animals is exclusively reserved for making atonement for sin. So the dignity of all life is really coming in view here, but please hear this, the primary protection for life that God establishes in this chapter isn't focused on animal life. It's focused on people. It's focused on human beings. Why? Look at verse 6. Because as verse 6 reminds us, human life is in a class by itself. You're not more sophisticated than the other animals. You didn't evolve to the top of the developmental food chain. What sets human life apart, verse 6, is that God made man in his own image. You bear the image of God. You bear the image of God. And and the Lord knew that even after the flood, that sin and violence would, would continue to spread in the world. So what did he do to protect the dignity of human life, to protect his image bearers? He instituted capital punishment as the penalty for murder. Notice that. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. As one commentator noted, it's it's as if God essentially says, listen, I'm not going to take human life through a flood again, and you're not allowed to take human life either. But Cain didn't do that back in Genesis 4, did he? Cain took Abel's life instead of protecting Abel's life. And so he murdered his brother. And and the Lord essentially says in chapter 9, verse 5, if any of you do that again, I'm going to hold you accountable. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning, verse 5, for the life of man. Why? Why? Because you are your brother's keeper. Cain denied that. He refused to admit it, but it was true. We, we have a communal responsibility, friends, for protecting the life of fellow image bearers. None of us get to say, oh, I don't know what happened over there. Don't get me involved in that. We are our brother's keeper. If you take someone else's life, God will appoint someone else to take your life. What's the big idea? That human life in every form, no matter how frail or how weak, it's a sacred gift from God. And because it's that, the author of life upholds our life by giving us purpose, provision, and protection. Summarize all that. The blessing of God sustains the life of man. Here's point three, final point. The covenant of God preserves the earth for man. Look at verse 8. The covenant of God preserves the earth for man. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you. And your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. Look at verse 11. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now we need to remember that when the Lord says. Behold. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you with with every living creature that is with you, he's not beginning a new relationship with creation. He's reaffirming a relationship that began with his gracious blessings back in Genesis 1 and is now continuing through his gracious blessings in Genesis 9. It's not a new relationship, but what is changing is the commitment or covenant God makes in the context of that relationship. Now, now that's not a word, covenant, that we use very often. We don't, but it's a really important word. It's it's a biblical word, because essentially, the entire storyline of the Bible could be described and is really carried along on, on the back of various covenants that God makes, commitments that he makes with his people, And I like Bruce Waltke's definition of covenant when he says, basically, it's a solemn commitment of oneself to undertake an obligation. A solemn commitment of oneself to undertake an obligation. What so, therefore, what is the commitment, what is the obligation that God is taking on himself in Genesis 9? What is it? What's a commitment to never again destroy the earth with a flood? never do that. He's obligating himself. I'm never going to do that again. And and there are at least four characteristics of this covenant between God and all creation that that I want us to see. So very quickly first, it's a divine covenant. So three times in verses 8 through 17, the Lord refers to his commitment as what? My covenant. It's my covenant. And though there's there's no shortage of of ordinances, laws, instructions for man all around this in, in Genesis chapter nine, the actual covenant itself, it's not our covenant. It's God's covenant. It's it's God's commitment. What why why is that comforting? Why is that comforting? It's comforting, it's encouraging because the covenant is built on the faithfulness of God not the faithfulness of man. And by saying this is my covenant God is binding himself to maintain it despite human failure and human sin. You know what that is called, church? That's really good news. Really good news. It's a divine covenant. Second, it's a mediated covenant. It's mediated. God's covenant is with Noah. His salvation is directed toward Noah. But God's promise to to preserve Noah, it it expands, doesn't it? In a a promise to preserve Noah's sons, Noah's offspring, and every beast of the earth. Now, Now, what's up with that? Well, all that reflects is that Noah is the covenant head. Or covenant mediator, he he represents all the other parties in the covenant. He's, he's responsible for his family. He's responsible for all God's creation, and thus, as the covenant head goes, so goes the rest of creation. Now, why is that important to understand that it's it's a mediated covenant with man at the center of it, in terms of the commitment God's making? What's well, it's important. Because we need to see that this covenant starts with man. It starts with man, and it's directed toward man. Now think about that. Okay, there are some people who would say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. God is redeeming his entire world. Is that the gospel? I didn't ask if it's true. I asked you, is that the gospel? It's not the gospel. The gospel is that God is redeeming sinful men through the person and work of Christ. But one of the entailments of the gospel, one of the results of the gospel, is that salvation for man will what? It will one day overflow in redemption for the entire created order. That's exactly what the, the mediated nature of the covenant in Genesis 9 teaches us to expect as man goes and as God's saving work toward man goes, so goes the rest of creation. So it's mediated. It's, it's focused on man. But even while we say that, we, we don't want to overlook the Lord's clear concern here for what? For every living creature of all flesh. If you were listening carefully when the scripture was read, you know how many times some version of all flesh, all flesh, all the earth, every living creature, every living creature of all flesh of the earth. It's just like, okay, I get it. <laughs> how about a pronoun? Well, it teaches us something, friends. teaches us our our God-given responsibility to rule over the rest of creation comes with a sobering responsibility to take care of God's creation, to be a faithful steward of God's creation. What do I mean? I mean that working hard to preserve the life of every creature God has made is not a political issue or a liberal issue or a Green Party issue. It's a biblical issue. It's a biblical issue. It's a biblical priority. We we may disagree on the wisdom of particular strategies or or programs when it comes to environmental conservation. But what we must agree on is this, as Christians, that because God cares for every living creature, we must care for every living creature too. And sadly, far too often, it's the Christians who say, rule the earth, subdue the earth, destroy the world. No, no. Take care of it. Steward it. God does. It's a divine covenant. It's a mediated covenant. Third, it's a visible covenant. It's a visible covenant. The Lord's promise of mercy. Verse 15, look there. As long as the earth endures, the water shall never again become a flood to destroy the earth. That's a promise God remembers. Why? Because it's a promise that God makes visible. It's visible. How does he do that? In the form of a rainbow. Form of a rainbow. Biblical covenants are often confirmed with a sign. And God's covenant with Noah is no exception. Okay? So when when beams of light hit water vapor at just the right angle, and they they fragment, they explode into a spectrum of color. You know what you're seeing in that moment? You're, You're not just seeing... A physical reality. There you are. You're seeing a spiritual sign. You're seeing a spiritual proof, a spiritual testimony from God that he's a faithful God and he's going to keep his covenant with all creation. You're you're seeing a sign, a testimony that, that our continued enjoyment of the gift of life in the midst of our sin and brokenness is an expression of extraordinary mercy. Think about that. God didn't have to make his covenant visible. He could have just said, hey, good news for you, I've got a covenant. What is it? You don't know. I'm not going to show you, but praise me for it. (laughs) No, he knows we're physical creatures in a physical world. And so the Lord, like a good dad, he accommodates himself to us and he says, listen, I'm going to give you a physical, physical, visible sign of my covenant with you. Why? Because I know that there are going to be times in your life when you Doubt my faithfulness. And in that moment, among many other things, I hope you find yourself walking at the end of a storm, because so often our life feels like a storm, and you look up into the clouds that threaten with rain and pain and hurt and sorrow, and you see a rainbow that you will stop in that moment and say, God, thank you that you are a faithful God and that you have kept your promise since that day to never again destroy the world with a flood. It's visible, it's also enduring. Friends, look at verse 12. God says it's a covenant for all future generations in verse 16, that it's an everlasting covenant, that his forbearance continues to the end of the age. What does what, what the natural man say? Let's just be honest, okay? The natural man beholds the, the unceasing march of time, the, the cyclical patterns of seasons, repetition of sea time and harvest, summer and winter, cold and heat, day and night, and, and the natural man concludes The laws of nature rule the world. What does the Christian conclude? What must we conclude when we look at the same laws, the same cycles, the same patterns? We must declare this, that a covenant keeping God rules the world. He's a faithful creator and and those natural laws and seasons and cycles only continue to exist because the God who created them continues to exist and he continues to keep his word of promise. That's what we say as Christians. The gift of life is upheld by the author of life. Why? Because the mercy of God gives life to man, the blessing of God sustains the life of man, and the covenant of God preserves the earth for man. Friends, the Lord has been faithful to keep his covenant with Noah ever since the day that he brought him out of the ark. And you know it's that faithfulness that God appeals to in urging us to trust the promise of another covenant? A new covenant that doesn't replace his covenant with Noah, but but rather builds upon it in an immeasurably greater way. Isaiah 54 verse 9. This is like the days of Noah to me, God says, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart, hear this, friends, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Do you know how that promise of steadfast love and compassion is ultimately fulfilled? What's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So God's covenant with Noah does what? It enables us to experience a a measure of life in this world. But friend, it's only through faith in the personal work of Christ that we can experience the joy of relationship with God in this world and the assurance of eternal life with God in the world to come. Those things don't come through the covenant with Noah. They come through God's new covenant with us in Jesus Christ. To conclude, I challenge you with this, friend. I challenge you to remember that the gift of life is still upheld by the author of your life. But that gift will not be upheld forever. The earth will endure but one day you will die. And on that day, the Lord will demand a reckoning for your life on the earth. Don't wait. Don't wait to get ready for that day. Don't don't allow the continued mercy of God in upholding your life here and now to cause you to take your life for granted and not prepare for the life that is to come. Because the author of life, the, the upholder of your life, you know what he wants to be in addition to those things? He wants to be the savior of your life. So run to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Trust him to save you from your sin by by providing an eternally sufficient, completely sufficient atonement for your sin because he will not fail you, friend. He will deliver you. He will rescue you. And he won't just uphold your life. He'll save your life because he's a faithful God. The author of life is the upholder of our life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for your word that reminds us you're faithful. And I pray, Lord God, that you would cause us to head into this week with a heart and an attitude that doesn't take the gift of life for granted recognizes we only have it because you're merciful. It only endures because you continue to sustain it. And it's only possible in this world of sin and brokenness because in your mercy, your covenant, you continue to preserve the earth. We thank you for how your word today confronts us with your faithfulness. And we pray that you would give us greater faith to trust you and follow you and lean on your mercy as a result. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.